So I wonder if you ever have a moment during your, an argument, that moment where you know that the next thing that's going to come out of your mouth will knock down that other person in a very painful way. It's going to detonate like a bomb and leave carnage and destruction in its wake, and you won't be able to walk it back. But you're so caught up in your anger, you're not thinking straight at that moment, and it's going to really put that person in their place, so you do it anyways. In your mind, you might be thinking, well, I'm just being honest and telling it like it is. But the truth is, you're just being sinful and telling it like you shouldn't. And then you end up having that knockdown, drag-out fight where even if you win, everybody loses. Afterwards, you may feel regret or shame or feel like you're going to give up on repairing the relationship. And so the question this morning is, how do we navigate conflicts in a better way? If you have a Bible, you want to turn in it to James chapter 4. We're in this series called Vibrant, where we're learning about a faith that works even when life doesn't. That as we're tested by both trials and temptations, that a vibrant faith perseveres by living out God's wisdom in our perspective and in our practices. In other words, does my life match my beliefs? Because a relationship with Jesus can't be compartmentalized to some areas of life, but it needs to be integrated, flowing from the inside outwards. And so last time, we talked about when we are building God's wisdom below the waterline with an attitude of humility, that above the waterline, it produces the fruit of peace and righteousness of God. But then, as the Jewish Christians who are receiving this letter from Pastor James are looking at themselves, they might be asking, why do I then experience the opposite of that peace and righteousness? Why is there so much conflict and chaos in our lives and in our church? James chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights amongst you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So in verse 1, Pastor James starts with a question. What causes these quarrels and fights amongst you believers in the family of Christ? And the answer, it's not the circumstances, it's not other people, it's the passions at war within you. Literally, the desire for pleasure or satisfaction, waging war against your very soul. And as a result, your drives and emotions boil over into an argument with other people. But the point there is that before there's a problem out there, there's a problem in here. And so in verse 2, he talks about how we lust and we covet internally, that there's something that other people have that I want, so I'm frustrated and I fight. So that's what's in us that explodes out of us and it escalates till it hurts other people verbally, emotionally, even physically at times. And so it's, the picture is like this. You look at someone else and you say to yourself, well, 
they have a nice house or they have nice stuff, a nice job, a nice house or a nice spouse, and I don't. That's not fair. I wish that your blessing was mine. So you get frustrated and then you take it out on you until I can take it from you and I'm going to let you know how spoiled, selfish, and undeserving I think you are so that you don't get to enjoy it either. And so for some of us, we see other people's stuff and we covet it and it makes us frustrated. Now, you might be sitting here this morning and thinking, well, that's not my issue. I don't want what other people have. I'm pretty content with what I have in life. Then why do you fight? I want you to think about it this way. Sometimes we're mad at people not because we want something from them, we think, but because of political differences in our opinion. Or you're mad at your family member, your, your husband or your wife or your parents or your child because they hurt you. And so we think to ourselves and we may say to that other person, finally, I see how ignorant and insensitive you really are. My life is already demanding without your understanding. And so now I've saw, I've saw the sign and it's opened up my eyes. I've, I've seen this sign and no one else is going to be able to drag you into this light where you belong. But the question is, where do you belong? And in your mind, you're thinking, in the prison of my punishment and my wrath for that person. Now, don't get me wrong. It's okay for us to disagree and debate with people at times, but why does it turn injurious and ugly? What is it that you want? What is it that you lust and covet for? I want to have my way. I want your acceptance or your respect. I want the satisfaction of being right more than I value a person made in the very image of God. Now, we may say to ourselves, well, I wouldn't quarrel with other people so much if God would just give me what I want. Why doesn't he? And Pastor James gives us three reasons. Starting at the end of verse 2, you don't have because you don't ask. In other words, when we have this desire and pursuit of our pleasure and our satisfaction, it is detrimental to our prayer life. We ask for nothing from God because in our minds, we may already know that what we're asking for is inappropriate or we're too proud to trust him for our needs, so we don't ask. Secondly, verse 3, or we do ask, but we don't receive because we ask with wrong motives for our self-centered gratification. And so that person asks God for something, and he says yes. And we ask, and God says, no, are you willing to trust me and my wisdom and what I, that what I have for you is better? And so we grow bitter, and we have conflict with other people, but what we really are is bitter and having conflict with God. Third reason, we get to the very heart of the problem. Verse 4, it says, you adulterous people. What does he mean by that? Who are we cheating on? Well, we're cheating on God. Because he goes on to say, don't you know that being friends with the world, not with people in the world, but with the values and the morals of the world makes you an enemy of God? And so, like someone having an affair, when a spouse doesn't give you what you want, then I'm going to go get it from someone else. Then the underlying issue here is our unfaithfulness to God, that he's not giving me what I want, so I'm going to get it from the world's way of satisfying my desires and disagreements. That what I want and how I feel is what's most important. So when there's a difference of opinion, then it erupts into a fight. That is adultery. Because what it's really saying is, who Jesus is and what he gives me is not enough. So I'm going to go get it myself. 
And so the point in this section is that worldly conflicts pursue its own satisfaction even at the expense of others. Because life is about what I desire and what I deserve and what I'm willing to do to get it. Even if you are the one that has to pay instead of me. And so it reminds me of when I was talking to this man, very angry man. He's angry with his wife. And he was telling me, you know, I, I tell my wife, I work hard all week, and then I just want a few hours to myself on Saturday mornings to relax. It's just common sense. And so we fight because my wife doesn't get it. She's being unreasonable. Now, it didn't take much, much, it didn't take much digging to discover that what he considers facts was actually just his opinion. You know what I'm talking about? When people say, like, you're not being reasonable, I'm being reasonable, but I'm stating facts, but a lot of times it turns out when you dig a little bit deeper, they're not facts, they're just opinions. And so as we dug a little bit, he was able to share with me, well, you know, he doesn't really, he never actually helps his wife on Saturday mornings. He doesn't do any of the chores while she's slaving away, and he doesn't talk about the alternative solutions that they could come up with if he's not going to help on Saturday mornings. Because he's blinded by his self-serving desires, he can't make that leap to understand and empathize with her plight. How do I know? How can I tell? Because as we're talking, he says, I get what you're saying to his wife, but it's not true. It's not a big deal. In other words, it doesn't matter that you think and feel that way because I don't. It's dismissive because I'm right and you're wrong. And if you win, then I lose. So instead of choosing God and in choosing you, I'm going to choose the world's way of prioritizing my perspectives and my pleasures. That's worldly conflict. So what are we supposed to do? As we sense our frustration rising, then we turn to Jesus and ask him, Lord, would you help me to see not just the surface situation and irritation, but what is my real unmet desire, the one that I'm craving to have filled. And then, help me, Lord. Help me to repent. Help me to surrender that part of me that's willing to sacrifice other people for my satisfaction, because that's worldly conflict. Now, some of us, we feel like, well, I don't have that problem, and we want to opt to have no conflict. But the reality in life is that you are a sinner, I'm a sinner, everyone is a sinner. We live in a fallen world. And so we're going to have conflict. And so to avoid it, some of us simply comply. Whatever you want is fine. I'll just go along with it. And so you bottle up your frustration until it blows up in devastation. Now, some of us, we've given up. And so we just withdraw from the person we have conflict with and we isolate ourselves. This happens to people who maybe grew up in a home where there was so much fighting, I never want to get married. I never want to have a family, start a family. Or you've been betrayed by a close friend, and so now you equate friendship with pain, and so you cut yourself off so that no one will ever be close enough again to stab me again. This happens to people who've been hurt in church, and then they leave, and then they never go to another church again. What is it that you want? What is it that you're actually desiring, lusting, and coveting for? That feeling safe and escaping discomfort is more important than being known and being close to people. And here's the reality for you. If your goal is, I don't want to have any conflict, then what you're really saying is, I don't want to have any relationships. 
because the cost of relationships is that there will always be conflicts. But what if there is a better option? Verse 5. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves to God, therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So in this previous passage, we're adulterous. But here in verse 5, God is faithful. Like a faithful spouse, he jealously guards our soul to be in an exclusive relationship with him. Because you and I were made to love and worship our creator not to whore ourselves out to all the pleasures and treasures of this life that drive our desires and disagreements in place of him. So at the beginning of verse 6, it says that even in our unfaithfulness and our arguments, that he continues to pour out even more grace, unearned favor upon us. And that's really significant because you think about in our fights, when the other person is wrong, we want justice. But when I'm wrong, I want grace. I want a heaping dose of compassion and understanding and acceptance and forgiveness. And God says, I give more grace to you. And I give more grace for you to be able to give to other people. So how do we experience God covering us, covering our conversations and our conflicts with grace so that we can resolve them rightfully and peacefully? The end of verse 6 says, depends completely on your posture before God. Quoting Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34, he says, if you're proud, if you place your self-righteousness, your self-sufficiency, your self-gratification as a priority over Jesus and other people, then God opposes you. He is your enemy. Or, if you're humble, then he'll generously pour out his grace upon you and your frustrations and your fights. And so I want you to think about it this way. Pride says, I'm more important, my rights, my need to win. It's all about me, not we. But humility allows us to see not just their sin, but mine too. That when our passions from the beginning of the passage get inflamed, we're so aware of how they're wrong, we tend to overlook how we might be too. And so what happens is, as we are humble, I want you to think of it this way. Grace is kind of like a mountain river, that it always flows down to the lowest point to give life and growth. It pools over here. Now, if we claw our way over other people, claw our way to the top, and stand there defiantly, then what we receive and perceive as grace is just a trickle over our feet. But if you stay low, you bow your head and your heart and your life before God, then it washes over you entirely because the gravity of grace always flows downwards to the lowly in heart. In verse 7, James concludes, Therefore, submit yourselves to God. 
And so the picture here, in other words, is that conflict is never about winning. It's about worship. It's not, how can I emerge in glory? It's about, what gives Jesus glory? And so the point of this section is that godly conflicts pursue humility before God for worshiping, not winning. It's the very opposite of worldly conflicts. That as we bow before God, as I see who I am in light of how great you are, then I will say, Lord, me, my pleasures, my perspectives are not the most important thing. You are. And then as we do, he pours his grace on me, on our situation, on our irritation, and then he transforms our heart and our words and our priorities and our perspectives so that instead of comparing and competing, it becomes cooperation and exaltation of Jesus. So how do we humble ourselves before God? Well, it starts with a question. Whose voice do you listen to? The second half of verse 7 says that Satan is the real enemy of your soul. But he tries to convince you that your boss or your spouse or your friend or your family are your enemy. And so he whispers into your heart, it's right for you to be stubborn and defensive. You should be self-righteous and blaming. I didn't do anything wrong. They're the problem. He tries to whisper to us to be selfish and proud. My rights and my needs are what's most important. Pastor James says, resist that. Instead, say, that's not true. Honoring God is what's most important, and he'll take care of the rest of my desires and needs. Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. My God will supply all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. That is the word of God as a mic drop, end of argument, and then the devil flees. So as he flees, instead in verse 8, we draw near to God and he draws near to us. And as he does, he pours his presence and his peace, his wisdom and his goodness and his grace upon us and in our conflict. So how do we experience that? I want you to listen to the tone of the following words very carefully. Cleanse your hands from sin. Purify your heart from double-mindedness. That means we're hedging our bets, that we're double-minded because we're trusting God, we say, but we also have a backup plan in case things don't, I don't get my way. Verse 9, instead of having glee over wounding somebody, mourn and weep. So the language of this passage is repentance, turning away from sin and Satan to God by faith in Jesus. And is there anything that is more humbling and holy than repentance before the Lord? Yesterday, I found myself annoyed and I blew it. I was peppering my wife, Melissa, with these self-righteous stinging questions and then to my self-righteous surprise, I'm asking her, why are you raising your voice at me? She calmly answered, it's not because you're asking questions, it's because you're attacking my character. And so in a huff, I just kind of leave the room and I go off somewhere to pray. And as I'm talking to the Lord, instead of him agreeing with me about how wrong she is, the Holy Spirit is very clear in showing me how I'm the one that's wrong. Now, there's a critical moment there. I have a choice to make. Will I submit myself to God? And I'll be honest, there was a moment where I kind of wrestled with this. No, I'm not going to go back and make this right. Am I going to bow to his authority or mine? Pride. And so as I kind of came crawling back to her, kind of mumbling to her, 
I'm sorry. I was wrong. And pro tip, by the way, when you apologize, don't follow up by saying, I'm sorry that I did this, but you, which is what we often do, because the temptation is to minimize my wrong by maximizing yours, and that immediately negates any humility and credibility. Now, I didn't do that, praise the Lord, and that caused her to feel safe enough to continue sharing about how and why she felt hurt. Now, I want to tell you, humility is not something that just you do one time. You just apologize, and that's, that's what, what works. Nine times out of ten, at this point, I'm going to start getting defensive if somebody keeps telling me what I'm doing wrong. So you have to understand that humility is a process. And so what is the next choice that you have to make? Am I going to listen to the world? What about me and my feelings? Am I going to listen to Satan? Forget that she's family. She feels like enemy. Or am I going to listen to Jesus? That as you feel your anger rise, you need to get low. That pride gets louder, but humility gets quieter. Humility helps us to listen more and speak less. And you're only going to get there if you decide, do I want to win or do I want to worship? And Pastor James concludes in verse 10, if you humble yourselves before God, then you don't have to worry about being a doormat or being taken advantage of. Submit and exalt him and then he will vindicate and exalt you. So I want to ask you, how do you need to humble yourself in conflicts today? It starts with repentance. Lord, did I do anything or say anything wrong? Do I need to apologize? What do I need to get right? What do I need to do differently? And then when he shows you, own it. When godly counsel tells you, own it. Don't run from it and don't deny it because it's only through humility before God that we're able to deal with this. Because in a fight, our hands get covered with mud and then we fling it at other people. And so we need our hands cleansed. Then Pastor James wraps up in verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against the brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save you and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So in verse 11, he wants to give us a practical conclusion. He started with a question. He's going to end with a question. But in verse 11, he says, don't speak evil about your brother or sister in Christ and don't judge them. And I wonder how many of us have done that exact, those two things in a fight, that that's kind of your go-to move when you're in an argument. Now, what that doesn't mean is it doesn't mean that we don't call out sin. We can and should out of care and concern for a brother or sister in Christ in our family. But the problem is that we tend to assign motive, motives and intentions to a people as if you and I can see into their hearts. And so we judge people's motivation with our speculation. I know part of the story, and so I think I can write the rest of the story. And as we do, then we respond by saying unkind, wicked things. We speak evil in judgment against them. You did that to me on purpose because you're a jerk, or you did that on accident because you're an idiot. We judge by assigned motives and, and intentions. 
So how do we keep ourselves from being harsh and judgmental? Verse 12, we remind ourselves there is already a lawgiver and judge, and it's not me. His name is Jesus. So in worldly conflict, when I get mad, I don't get what I want. I convene a court, and I climb up into the high seat of judgment proudly and arrogantly, and then I render a verdict about your actions and your character, and then I execute my punishment so that there can be justice, at least for me. And Jesus walks in, what's going on here? Well, I'm holding court. Well, I didn't get invited. Who's the judge? I am. And then Jesus says to us, well, that's my seat. Who's rendering the verdict? I am. Jesus says, that's my job. I give the law. I'm the judge. And if you don't deal with conflicts my way, then you're going to deal with me. Godly conflict. Jesus walks in dismisses me from the bench, and he says to the other person, they're guilty. Yay! Looks at me, you're guilty. What? (laughs) And then the sentence for my sinfulness and our hurtfulness is death. But I, Jesus, will pay. And I reconcile with them, and I, Jesus, reconcile with you, and then you two reconcile together with each other. But where's the justice? at the cross. Who's going to pay? Jesus already did. So humility, if we're going to submit ourselves to God, humility submits to God as judge instead of me being the judge. And he concludes with this question, as, a, as the lawgiver and as the judge, you might remember that Jesus said in Matthew 22, to, the law is love God, love your neighbor as yourself. And so he concludes this passage with, who are you to judge your neighbor? And so we know, instead of intentionally calling people our brother or sister, he's now calling them our neighbors, that we understand what the law is and who's judging. So when Melissa and I, when we're sometimes at an impasse, in an argument, instead of beating each other down, when we're at our best, instead of trying to use convincing and condemnation. There are times we'll turn to God. I submit to you. I'm going to give this argument to you. You be the judge. And I have to tell you, there's nothing worse than when Melissa sicks our Heavenly Father on me. Because more often than not, like a few minutes or hours later, I have to come back humbly with my hat in my hand. Uh, God has really convicted me. I'm sorry for the way I said things and the way I did things is wrong. How can we work this thing out? when you know who the judge is, and when you turn to him for justice, let him work it out. That's what humility looks like. So when you feel harsh and judgmental, remember who the real judge is. Pride causes us to curse and slander and judge people in our conflicts. But humility receives grace so that we can give grace by giving people the benefit of the doubt. Instead of judging them, instead of accusing them, So what we do here is when you're giving people the benefit of the doubt, that's what grace looks like, we ask questions instead of making accusations. To understand instead of demand. To see as family instead of enemy. The number one complaint I've heard from people, when a lot of people have come to me for counseling over this past year, and the number one complaint from people who've been stuck at home for this past year is that I've been fighting more with people at home. Or, I avoid fighting by avoiding people, so I'm more lonely at home. 
And what the Bible doesn't say is that if you follow Jesus, you won't have conflict. What it does say is when you do, do you know the cause and do you know the solution? See, oftentimes in counseling, I tell couples that the goal isn't don't fight because everyone fights. The question is, do you fight well? Do you know how to identify your own baggage and sinful desires? Do you know how to repair and resolve with humility God's way? We live in a natural world that says, don't be a doormat, have some pride, stand up for yourself, and fight for what you want. But we have a supernatural God who says, when you feel your anger rise, get low. Humble yourself, repent of your sin and your judgment, receive more grace so that you can give more grace because conflict is never about winning. It's always about worshiping. Will I love and honor and exalt Jesus because he loves and honors and exalts me before the Father? And so I want to challenge you today. You're going to fight with somebody, whether it was yesterday, tomorrow, but today, if you are having conflict in the body of Christ and you need to repent before God and that other person, would you submit yourself to God and deal with it today? Today, we're going to practice not being enemy, but being family. And so we're going to hold communion. So right now is the right time for those of you at home to prepare some bread and juice if you haven't done so already. And for those who are here in person, we're going to invite you to come up and just take, there's individual uh, juice and bread for each of you. And what I want you to do is during this next song, after I pray, is just spend some time in reflection. How am I approaching conflicts? Without when I deal with things, am I thinking about myself? Am I seeing people as enemy instead of family? And so I end up dealing with things in a worldly way instead of a godly way. And what needs to change? And so as you prepare some things, we're going to sit and reflect. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. You reflect and pray. Get right with God. Get right with people. And then we're going to take communion together after this song. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the beautiful and words of our brother, Pastor James, who doesn't just give a good word for people. He gives it for pastors too. And so we're thankful. And Lord, I confess that this message is really hard for me to give because this is my weakness. This is my sinfulness. I love to fight. I am terrible at humility. I'm great at trying to take what I want and get what I want and terrible at giving people grace, giving people the benefit of the doubt. And so we humble ourselves this morning. We bow before you and ask that you would speak to us in this moment that before we partake in the body and blood of Christ together as a family, that we would get right with your family in humility, in repentance. Change our hearts, O oh God, that what we would seek is not winning, but worshiping. So would you deal with us this morning? Help us to stop thinking about what someone else has done wrong to me. Help us to focus on what you want from me. And would you change us? Would you wash us clean in the blood of Christ? Would your Holy Spirit empower us to live anew in ways that shine much differently than the rest of the world? We praise you. 
name of Jesus.